Okay, we're off. Uh, December 15, uh, 2013, lecture discussion number 136 on the Book of Romans. <coughs> Excuse me for the internet, folks. There will be no lectures December 22nd or December 29th. Um, and we also uh, have uh, 16 to 20 inches of snow. I have someone in Phoenix that is complaining about the cold. Uh, and, of course, they have no perspective. <coughs> it's not their fault. Well, let's see. We've progressed uh, along now to where we find ourselves at the third part of God's uh, three-part commandment to the man of God at 1 Kings 13. You might remember, I hope you do, he had this commandment to uh, the man of God, which I think is Shemaiah, and he said, don't eat, don't drink, and don't return the same way you came. And this one, this definition of this return word is uh, where we are at today, though it may not seem like it. Um, uh, we're at that don't return the same way you came uh, part of that three-part commandment. That is the more, uh, if you will, that is the one that is the most um, difficult, in my view, to, to kind of get through. And if you were here the last two weeks, and hopefully you were, or if you weren't, you remember the connections or the similarities between this commandment and uh, Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Whenever you see a don't eat, well, the first thing you should do is immediately recognize that was uh, what was given to Adam at Genesis 2 and, of course, plays into Genesis 3. Uh, the first man of God, he is, uh, his name actually means man. He is the man of God, Adam is. And the man of God of 1 Kings 13, they share a, a, a great amount of a series of common elements together. Let me just quick recap some of those. Uh, each man of God, Adam and the man of God at 1 Kings 13, they have a disobedience to a direct order from God. And what they did, what they disobeyed, is the eating provision. Both of them did. Uh, eating what is prohibited, and as a result of that, both of them, both men of God's, if you will, to pluralize, pluralize that, if it's appropriate to do that, both men of God's have death as a result of violating that eating commandment. Now, we had the drinking commandment to the second man of God, but it's interesting to note that the, the, both of them have the eating commandment, but only one has the drinking commandment, and that has to be worked through. And lying is uh, prominent in both uh, events. Genesis uh, 3, we have uh, the the serpent lying to Eve. In 1 Kings 13, we have the lying old prophet lying to the second man of God. So I have eating that is prohibited and death as a result and lying and prominent in both events. Uh, Satan himself is in the, the event with uh, Adam in Genesis uh, 3, specifically to Eve. And we have Jeroboam, who is a type because of the withered arm. He is so designated... Uh, a type of the Antichrist, or the seed of the serpent, if you will, at 1 Kings 13. A person, Eve with respect to Adam, and the old prophet with respect to the man of God at 1 Kings 13. A person comes to Adam bringing a choice. A person comes to the man of God bringing a choice. If you want to think of it that way, I think that's appropriate. If you choose wrong here, if you choose to disobey the commandment God has given you, uh, that will end with death for the man of God. And so, and both man of God's, again, to pluralize that, make an undeceived decision, knowing full well 
that if they if you eat what Eve has brought or you return and eat what the old prophet is providing, both of uh, both will result in death as a disobedience of that commandment that was given to you, to both as well. And neither accepts the offer that is given by Satan or his or his type of the seed. Neither man of God is deceived and takes that reward. Both men of God return instead for one that has fallen. And both men of God eat and both men of God suffer uh, death as a result. So that's just to tell you, just to kind of get you back to understand. That's just a few of them, by the way. There are a lot more. You could you can deal with that uh, for your life, as a matter of fact, comparing 1 Kings 13 to Genesis 2 and 3. So... But they're critical characteristics, and what else are they? I have two guys that literally in the story, many times, by the way, you'll find this as you go through your uh, Christian studies. I hope that, um, that you're doing those kinds of things and, and reading other people and learning what they have to say. But as you go through, you'll find the critics say the Bible is the same story over and over and over again. Noah is the same as Adam. First Kings 13 is the same as Adam. All these stories are the same. They seem to be the same. They just repeated the same story over and over and over again. And that is because they're all what? They're all prophecies. They're all portraits of Christ. Every single one of them. He says so. Search the Scriptures. 539 John. Everything in the Old Testament is a prophecy of me. If you don't get that, you'll be confused. about. Now, they're actual, literal people, actual, literal events, people who said and did exactly as is written, but all of them are prophecies of Christ. He fulfilled every single one of them. That is your evidence of who he is. So, it's, it's important to realize that that is the case as well. These are some of the, the ones today uh, with regard to 1 Kings 13 is one of the great. And I shouldn't say that because it's, I consider it great because it's really clear. Adam is really clear that they are prophecies of Christ. So Christ fulfills them. And I made the point last week that Christ fulfilled much of 1 Kings 13 at Matthew 4, where I have a reward offered to the man of God. I have Satan offering a reward to Christ. Almost the same thing. Kingdom. Kingdom reward. Uh, he also fulfills uh, the eating and the drinking. It, it, the, the contrast to it, if you will. Instead of don't eat and don't drink, it is here, eat, here, drink. So whenever you see eat and drink in the Bible, immediately you should go, especially in the Old Testament, you should see what relationship does it have to the communion that uh, Christ, uh, for example, Matthew 26, 26 through 29. So it's important to realize that much of the prophecies of Adam from Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 and the man of God from 1 Kings 13 are fulfilled by Jesus Christ or they are, they are illustrating what Jesus does at Matthew 4 in the wilderness with Satan and what he is, uh, it illustrates what he means by the bread and the wine that are symbols of his body and blood that we are to drink. And there are obviously other passages as well. But if you just get that, you're way ahead. You put those pieces together, you will always understand a great part of Genesis 3, Genesis 2, and 1 Kings 13. And you'll now know why Christ does things. 
Because once you find the Old Testament prophecy, you can answer why instead of just what, or, uh, which is almost always answered. Everyone says what he does, and that's wonderful. It's important to know what he does or what he says, but it's also important to know what he means and why he does it. You find that by comparison, by, by comparing to Old Testament, okay? A few weeks ago, I, I spent a very brief amount of time on Jesus' third saying from the cross. Do you remember that? Where he says this. He has seven sayings. In the third one, he says something that is very mysterious. He says to the woman, he says, woman, behold, and I don't do it justice, I should jump up and down and scream it. Behold your son. And I always do it this way, so that you know he's not talking about himself. Then he says to John, John, behold your mother. So I always put John in parentheses. I'll do it here too. Behold your son, John. John, behold your mother. Now, as we said before, John's actual mother was standing there. So you, she obviously has to work her way through this as well. Why did he say that? That's the third statement from the cross that he says. And we just tried to figure out very quickly when I brought it up what he meant by this very puzzling. It's a commandment, isn't it? It's an order from God. Woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. What are they supposed to do? Did they understand it? This is an assigning of the woman, and that, by the way, is Mary, to John and to, and to, as his mother, and John to the woman as son. Now, how many other sons did Mary have? Quite a few. And as I said, John's actual literal mother, biological mother, was there as well. And certainly, we should expect that statement, that third saying. I mean, uh, there's seven things he says, and they're all unbelievable, unimaginably profound. We should expect this one to be just the same, as complex. And we should therefore quickly, immediately, when you read something that is simple, reject it. Because it can't be true. Reject any and all simple explanations of, of what he said from the cross. Especially those who think, and I'll repeat this a little bit, there are the number one view is that Christ is worried about her financial future. And that's what he does. He says, well, she's going to be destitute. I'm going to assign her to John. What happens to John, by the way? John is essentially imprisoned on an island, boiled in oil, that he survives. He's unharmed. So he certainly has no financial capability. That can't be the case. But that's what you will find over and over again. And it, uh, unfortunately, it's, it's unadulterated nonsense. It's an excellent example of a position that is really uh, irreverent to Christ. It's dishonoring. It's a Christ-dishonoring view. 
besides just being conjecture. It's logically thin. If you say that Christ wanted John to take care of his mother's financial concerns in the future, then you must be saying that he picked somebody who was going to be imprisoned and isolated on an island and of no value to her at all. Would he know that? You either say that he knew that and did it for some odd reason that had nothing to do with her finances or was it certainly ineffective, or he didn't know it. In which case, both of those are dishonoring to him. That's why I I see it as it's worthless. And anyone who accepts or teaches that view should be ashamed of it and will be. It's difficult to have a lower view of Christ than that view. Christ is God. He doesn't worry. We're the worriers, not him. He is the creator of time. He is therefore omniscient. Those two go together. He knows what the future is. Duh. He could make gold from nothing and in fact has. We're the ones that think it's valuable. He doesn't. What does he think is valuable? He is focused on salvation. I've made this statement. I'll make it again. Every single statement that he makes from the cross, somebody is saved by it. No exceptions. From I thirst, it is finished. To behold your son, behold your mother. Father, forgive them. My God, my God. When he quotes the hind of the morning. The song, the hind of the morning. Psalm 22.1. So, he's focused on salvation while walking in our midst in his first coming, his first advent, and he's certainly doing it from the cross. So again, ask the obvious question. If he is saving somebody, who is he saving when he says, woman, behold your son, John, behold your mother? And what does this have to do but do not return the same way you came. Two men have returned the same way they come. In a sense, I'll cover that in a minute with respect to Adam. I'll put that in parentheses. Two men have returned. Both have died. What does it mean? Back to the question of who got saved. Who's your choices? Woman, behold your son. Who got saved? You can choose. Who heard that? Lots of people heard it. John's mother heard it. Was she saved by that? Mary heard it. John heard it. I, I, I think the case is clear that John has no salvation issues at all. But that leads me to ask the next question that is not always received well. Is Mary saved when she hears those words? In other words, is she unsaved before she heard those words? Does she have any idea who Jesus Christ is in the sense from a salvation perspective? Now, I recognize that I'm approaching this from a human-based inside-of-time perspective. When I ask this question, is Mary saved when then I am putting humanity and humanity's 
understanding of time into the equation. Is Mary saved when she is assigned to John? In other words, is she unsaved? So she's standing there and she hears these words from Christ, Woman, behold your son. Does she have salvation? Has she chosen salvation? Is a bad, another way to put it that will cause debate. But is she a saved woman at that moment? That's a human-based, time-based uh, word, obviously. So how do I answer a question like that? The best way to do it is got to go around and collect something. What do I have to collect? I have to collect woman. I have to go get all the womans in the Bible in order to find out what he meant by woman, behold your son. So off I go, essentially. Wherever God says woman, I have to find them. I have to put them side by side. Wherever Christ says woman, that's my first place to go. So I'm going to take you to the first place. Now listen, I get lots of mail, as you know, some months more than others. I get lots of phone calls, too. Some months more than others. And one of the things they tell me a lot is, who cares? Why do you care? In fact, I, as you know the story, I've said it many times. I one time was doing a lecture and I had a gentleman in the back of the room that had taken the time to make a sign. And he held it up. Who cares? I've never forgotten him. I've never forgotten the sign. I wish I had the sign. There was a time when I was actually deeply offended by things like that. Now I, I, I kind of like it. I don't know. It's a, maybe it's the dance band on the Titanic mentality that I have now. But I actually find it kind of funny. But, the, but I get that quite a bit. And the point of it is, is that why do you care what he said, what he means? What difference does it make? Why are you interested in these kinds of details? You know, why can't I'm, I'm saved? I'll go through my life. I'll be saved. Doesn't matter. That probably in the in my in my brief career of 25 years or so of doing these kinds of things, I would say that that probably is in the top five responses that I get. I had one gentleman used to tell me, I want to be the last person into heaven. So in other words, I want to be so down as low as you can go and still be saved so that I get into heaven as the last guy. That was his goal. I thought that was an interesting perspective. And those two are related, by the way. Why do I have to spend time understanding what Christ means? What, what's the value in that? Why do you have to spend time figuring out what Christ means? First reason, he ordered you to do it. So if you don't do it, you are what? Disobeying a direct order from who? You are assuming that, why, why wouldn't you do it? I always ask the people that tell me this. Why wouldn't you do it? They will answer truthfully. You know the answer I get back? I don't care. Okay, cool. We're making progress. 
Why don't you care? You don't think it's valuable to you to know the depths of Scripture. You don't think it is valuable to you to understand God's mind. And he says what? The exact opposite of that. You will say, I will say, we will all say, I don't have time. It's not a high enough priority to me. Why do you say think that he tells us, orders us, search the scriptures, learn about me? Know as much about me as you can possibly know. Why does he say that? I've always imagined going to heaven, standing before him, and he will tell me, you spent a lot of time playing pool. I'm mourning my pool table. It is no longer... I've lost the comfort of knowing that it is here. It's with Ben now. Ben has it. He's putting videos of his dog taking the ball off the table and running around the room with it. And that is the fate of my pool table. <laughs> that old joke that says that if you play uh, a good game of pool, that is a that is a uh, a demonstration of a well-rounded education. If you play a great game of pool, that is a demonstration of misspent time. And that, uh, so I always worried that I would know more about obscure things like pool than I did about Scripture. He is telling me to make this information my highest priority. Is he doing it because he thinks it's good for him? No, he's doing it because he knows it's good for us. The more you know about Christ, the more successful your life will be. It doesn't mean you're going to have an... What's the word I want? You will have peace. You will not have cake. That makes sense? There is no health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine. It's not true. You're not a Christian... Felicia was telling me about, she was listening to a gentleman talk about, pick up your cross and follow after me. Something he says, what's, what was a cross? What was the definition of a cross? An execution system. Not telling you that you will have an easy life and have a wealthy life and even have a healthy life. He's telling you, you will have a life of peace if you know what I meant when I said, woman, Behold your son. Amongst everything else he said. If you understand what he said and what he meant, your life will be a life of peace. Okay, so we're going to try to do it. John 2, read it really fast. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. That is a really good idea, by the way, to invite him. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. What is that, by the way? She thinks he needs to know that. What's the first problem she's got? Just imagine yourself. You go up to, you're the person, you know those commercials, don't be that guy. You're the person at the wedding that goes up to Christ, who's who? He's God himself. You go up to him and you say, God, here's we're out of wine. As if he needs to what? What do you think he's going to do? Oh, didn't notice. 
you're in very poor theological standing. That is a statement of very poor theological standing. And Jesus said to her, woman, that's why we're doing it. We're going to try to figure out why he says to her twice, he says to her, woman, by the way. But he says woman to other people as well. But that's why we go, woman. To figure out woman, behold your son, we have to find the women. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do. Now there were... Now, there were set there six water pots of stone. They were set there, by the way, because they were busted. Who is he? Read the Psalms. Who is he? Read Zechariah. Who is he? He's the potter. What are we? We're the pots. Busted pots. What are busted pots representative of? This is not in the notes. I'm just... Adding things, I'll probably run out of time later. What are busted pots representative of? Physical death. That's right. Now, there were six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 gallons or 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them to the brim. Okay. They're not leaking all of a sudden. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. So he takes water pots that were set aside because they were defective in some way and had some water in them. He fills them to the brim and then he tells them to take it to the master of the feast. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. So obviously we have water put in pots that had been set aside that now has become wine. And we know the wine is part of the communion service. Wine ultimately becomes blood. Blood ultimately becomes life. And ultimately, or to the end, to the natural end of all of this, is resurrection. I hope you got that. Okay? So, <clears throat> that's how we start. Woman, he asks her a question. God looks at Mary and says, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? She's concerned about what? We're out of wine. And his question to her, What does your concern have to do with me? I'm going to make a statement. It's impossible to solve the third saying of Christ from the cross. John 19.26 and 19.27. Woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. You cannot solve that unless you understand what's going on in John 2. So that's how we start this. And other places, by the way, but that's how we start. We start with the water into wine, and that ends... Uh, of course, with this, with that miracle, uh, that's how we begin to solve that third saying. And this, by the way, is the first miracle of the book of John. And John is the one being talked to with the third saying. 
And John um, has a purpose when he writes the book of John. What is he trying to do? He tells you at the end of it what he's trying to do. He's trying to get you to understand who Christ really is. Think of it almost like a secret identity. A long time ago, Bill and I went to a goofy movie. I don't know how we got to go to the movie, but we went and we sat next to each other and we thought it was going to be terrible. And we ended up really liking it and we've stolen lines from it and we use it every day on the job. It's kind of our own little language now. But the secret... Uh, the, the, the guy, the star of the show was a, was a, what do you call him? I can't come up with a, a superhero. There, I got it. The star of the show was a superhero, uh, Captain Amazing. And no one could know his secret identity. And his disguise was he had glasses. And he put them on and put them off. And they kept saying, I'm pretty sure that Captain Amazing is this guy. And they go, no. And they'd put glasses on and take them off. He's wearing glasses. It's obvious. It's no different than... Clark Kent, right? The disguise was glasses. And it was very funny. And, of course, they killed Captain Amazing. And that's why Bill and I liked the movie so much. Don't go see it. You'll, you'll lose respect for both Bill and I. But we decided that one or the other of us at any given time was Mr. Furious. We had no superpower. We could just make noise. So, my point is, is that John wanted to make he's doing all of these things he put these things in order they actually have this chronological order but he put them in an order and he made sure that you knew that Christ was doing things that were unbelievable proofs of his true secret if you will identity it's perfectly appropriate to think of Christ as hiding himself it's exactly what he's doing he's running around doing incredible things And nobody knows who he really is. Who is he really? He's creator God. Really. He's got glasses on. And nobody knows who he is. Very few people know. But that's what John is doing. That's the whole purpose. I'll bring that back up again. So I just want you to know that the first selected miracle... Uh, in the book of John, that Christ does this potter, clay, fill water pots, becomes wine. That miracle uh, is deeply connected to Christ's third saying. And what connects it is the fact in both cases, he says to Mary, woman. In the second one, he actually brings up the word mother. I can solve why he does that by searching out mother and woman. And what he really means. Because first I start out with, I know his secret identity. I know that it's just glasses, if you will. So, by the way, it's appropriate to say that the wedding miracle isn't concluded until that third saying. When he says this, woman, behold your son, he is now finally concluding the wedding miracle. Do you notice, by the way, that uh, when he asks Mary a question, she doesn't answer it. She actually just, what? I make this joke all the time. 
Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Her answer is, read it. I'll read it for you. Whatever. She never answers it. He answers it for her. I'll get that, I'll get that to that in a moment. You have to understand that God asks Mary a question. When omniscient creator God asks a question, it is not, it is never, it is not that he doesn't know the answer. He always knows the answer. It's we that don't know the answer. Mary didn't know the answer. So what's the answer? Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? This is an unbelievably profound bottomless question. You spend your whole life on just this question, trying to figure out the totality of the answer. And so we start searching scriptures. And the first place we go after we've come here, and we got here because, again, of the seventh saying. So I've already gone to John 2, right? I'm going to go off to it. I'm just going to go all through John, by the way. John starts out, Asking that question, woman, he doesn't. He records the question. And then he spends a great deal of his gospel dealing with it. But we're going to go from John 2 now to Genesis 3.13. Why am I going to Genesis 3.13? Huh? Yes, yes, stand up, Bonnie gets an A. Yes, because he just asked a woman a question. Where's the first place in the Bible that he asks a woman a question? I'm going to go back to the very first place in the Bible I have the word woman. He's God. Does he know the definition of the word woman? Of course he does. God asks a woman a question there, doesn't he? He asks the woman, the first woman, what is this you have done? So there must be a relationship between what, uh, excuse me, woman, what does your concern have to, to do with me and what is this you have done? How are these two questions connected is essentially what I'm asking. This is the first step to solving that third statement of Christ of, from God of, from the cross. Notice how I said that. Connecting Genesis 3.13 to John 2.4. That's how you get started. So far, so good. I got to know what Eve's question meant. Then I can begin to figure out what Mary's question meant. I'm going to make this statement. I hope it's obvious. Isn't it obvious that the man of God, Adam, returned to the woman? In the sense that when the woman comes to him dying with the poison, isn't it obvious that he is not dying? He has to go to her. She is someplace he's not. So in that sense, he goes to her. I'm going to get into this word returned in three weeks. But it isn't obvious that the man of God, Adam, returned in the definition that we'll eventually get to, to the woman Eve, and then ate and died. And isn't it obvious that the man of God, 1 Kings 13, returned to the old prophet? 
and ate and died. And now we have God himself on the cross, soon to extinguish his own life because he has that kind of power. He can lay it down. He can pick it up at will, John 10, 18, as many times as he wants. And he's just about to extinguish his life and demonstrate that he has totally authority over it. He'll end it in an instant when he wants, at the exact time he wants, which is 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And he says to the woman, Behold, John, John, behold, mother. Somehow, Eve and the old prophet and Mary are linked together. Does that make sense? When I make a list of Eve... Because of how she and Adam interacted, I will notice that the old line prophet has a similar issue. And then I will notice that Christ does something similar with Mary. Actually, it would be better to write woman here and woman here. So I have... A woman sandwich with the old line prophet in between two women. Now, that tells me the old line prophet is what? In a symbolic way, not literally, he is also whatever it is that the woman represents. Does that make sense? Might not. Stay with me. Remember, again, she does not answer God's question, Mary, at the wedding. She says, whatever. And she only says to the servants, whatever he says, do it. She doesn't talk to him. And so, again, what is the answer to his question and what is implied by his question? It's obvious that it is implied that Mary does not know the answer to the question. That is the first thing. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? She doesn't know. By the way, if she knew who he really was, she would have never asked the question, right? So he is telling her right there, you don't know who I am. Mary does not know. And by the way, what she does not know is exactly the same as Peter. John 21, 15 through 17. God asked Peter a question. He asked him three times. Peter got it wrong the first two times, finally gets it right the third time. And the answer to the God's question is, you know all things. He, God asked Peter, do you love me? Peter says, ah, 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 ah. Ask him again, do you love me? La, 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 la. Ask him again, do you love me? And he finally says, you are omniscient God. You know all things. That's the answer. If you love God, then you know that he is omniscient God. That is God's definition. So he asked Peter a question three times, and Peter answered finally, correctly, the third time. And again, Eve is to the old prophet, is to Mary, is to Peter, with respect to Israel. Hopefully that fits for you. 
Anyway, keep messing with it. Christ answers the Mary question at John 19, 26 through 27. He answers that question for Mary with, Woman, behold your son. The answer to, What does this, what does your concern have to do with me is, Woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. I know that because of Ezekiel. 19.1 and 19.9 and 10. I realize that Mary, Peter, Eve, Old Prophet, John may not immediately seem to be the same subject. I, I, I get that. Um, but it is important to continually keep ourselves focused on what God is thinking and what God is doing. And not impose our impulses, our impulses and our attitudes into it. Um, we have a tendency to put our selfishnesses. That's not a word. It will be soon. Selfishnesses. But we have a tendency to think that God thinks like us. He does not think like us. And when you read something he says, if you think that he is saying it in the same way that we say it, if you attach our or your or my impulses or attitudes, again, or selfishness, and the plural of selfishness is selfishnesses, if you do that, uh, you have erred already. God doesn't do that. He doesn't think like us. We are sinful. He is pure good. And that, by the way, as an aside, is a key. It's critical. It's, it's consequential. It's a, uh, it's a just extraordinary piece of understanding. If you don't understand the difference between him and us, then um, you're seldom going to get any passage correct. Uh, you're seldom going to gain the true meaning of any passages. It is, um, to put it in the, the best way I can, it is the ability to know good from evil principle. You have to know good from evil. God has no evil ever. All he has is good. So whenever he says something, you have to know there's no sin in it in any way. If you interpret it in such a way that you add your sin or if my sin or anybody's sin to it, then you have profaned it and you cannot be right. And good and evil are a theme in the Bible. And very often that which is good is placed directly in contrast with that which is evil. If you can figure out who is the good one and who is the, the other one, all you have to do is figure out who's the good one most of the time. Then the other one is automatically what? The evil one. I'll give you an example. Lazarus the beggar. What's contrary? Good or evil? All in favor of the Lazarus standing next to Abraham in paradise is good. Raise your, don't raise your hand here. If Lazarus is good, then how about the rich Pharisee? What's he? He's got to be evil. I say it all the time. If you read that story and you start to feel sorry for the rich Pharisee, or you start to believe the rich Pharisee, or you think the rich Pharisee got a good point, then what have you done? You're on the side of the evil one. And that's a big mistake. And that's where you start that's the good, knowing good from evil principle. Anyway, 
Not knowing why God calls something evil will lead us to confusion. Let's take another shot at this third saying uh, from the cross from a different angle. All the while remembering that the man of God, Adam, heeded the voice of the woman. The man of God at first kings heeded the voice of the old prophet. Both returned. Both died. And the God-man, Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh, he does this. He weeps for Israel. He weeps for Jerusalem. And he says to the woman, Behold. I'll put another Ezekiel up there that helps you understand. Ezekiel 16, 1 and 16. I think it's 10 as well. Wouldn't that be coincidental? No, it's 16, 14. Actually, just go from Ezekiel 16 all the way to 14. That'll get you through that. So, solving woman, solving mother... Solving what he means by woman and mother, Ezekiel 19, Ezekiel 16, okay? Now, we're going to begin our next phase of this, uh, taking our two man of gods and our God-man pieces with us, uh, and off we'll now go and collect uh, another place in the New Testament where God uses the word woman. And remembering that the first time God uses the word woman is in Genesis 2, 22 through 23. Now, after... John 2.4, probably the next place that is critically important for figuring all of this out, understanding what God really means when he says that, that will be John 8. So let's go to John 8. What is John 8? By the way, people will tell me, what about John 4? Why don't you go in order? I think John 8 is more important to go next just because of the clarity. John 4 is going to be after John 8. So here we are at John 8. What do we have here? Don't have time to read it. I'll just, uh, I'll just do the first two verses or three. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees. Who is the good person so far in the story? Christ is. I, please, I hope we're that far. Who is going to be the evil people in the story? The Pharisees. Knowing good from evil. Do not say, oh, hey, they caught a prostitute and they brought him to the broader and wow, they're good basic police people. They're doing great. We're ridding the place of harlots. No. They're profoundly wicked and evil. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman. Oh, cool. This is going to help us understand the third saying of Christ from the cross. Caught in adultery. What's the obvious question? How did the evil people catch her? What's going on here? And when they had set her in the mist, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery. How did they know? They're what? This is, is this true, by the way? They're evil. Just like the rich Pharisee. If you're saying to yourself, and I do these lectures all the time on these 
particular passages, I get so many people feeling sorry for the Pharisee. Oh, my goodness. Please don't watch infomercials if you're feeling sorry for the Pharisees. You'll buy everything. And it's just not going to be good. Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. How did they know that? Oh, probably videotape. Now, Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? I'll just keep reading. This they said, trying to trap him. I'm putting that word. It's a a trap. They think they've got him to where if he says we shouldn't stone her, then he's in favor of adultery. And if he does stone her, then he's stoning what? He's stoning probably somebody that they are illegitimately accusing. And so they, they think they got him either way. Their problem is what? He's omniscient God. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what they're doing. He knows what their plan is. It's really handy to be omniscient. They said this testing him that he might have something of which to, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So God writes with his finger. That's very important, by the way. Go find where else God writes with his finger. God uses his finger quite a bit. You can think of the finger of God uh, at the Ten Commandments, and you can think about the finger of God. Go connect it to uh, Babylon, right? Okay. So this is after John 2, John 8, the woman caught in adultery, caught by the very scribes and Pharisees whom Christ declares to be evil, Matthew 23. Uh, This is probably the next place to go in order to solve the third saint. So, again, begin with that. Evil men have caught a woman in the very act. Start asking, how did they do that? Now, Psalm 22.1. What's Psalm 22.1? My God, my God. That is what the hind of the morning says. When the hind of the morning is surrounded and caught. Christ is not the hind of the morning. So here I have a woman who has been caught and now she has been brought to be executed and she is surrounded. That, by the way, 22.16 of Psalm and Ezekiel 16.40. So another Ezekiel. We see this pattern of a hind, and I believe it really is a woman in Psalm 22.1. Once again, Christ, not a woman. A woman says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You have to figure out what the symbol of a woman is in the Bible. Why God uses it as a symbol. A woman is caught in a situation that is going to kill her. There you have your Eve almost immediately, right? So... The hind, if you will, the woman is surrounded, and they, the evil uh, pursuers are, if you will, the e- evil captors intend to kill her. And notice that Ezekiel contains, uh, again, many of the answers are why God said, woman, behold your son, as does Psalm 22. Anyway, the evil pack brings the caught woman to Christ, and they expect him to do what? 
join the pack or not join the pack? What are they going to do to the woman no matter what he does? There is no possibility that they have envisioned that, they, that uh, she escapes alive. They're going to kill her right there. Whatever position he takes, she still gets killed. Anyway, again, look at what they say. I'll read verse 7. They ask him this question, but he stoops down and writes on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, so the evil, let me reset it again, the evil pack brings the caught woman to Christ and they clamor for him to kill her. Who is the woman? Who is she representing? The evil pack has caught the hind of the morning They brought her to God and they demand that God kill the woman who is who. So you start start figuring out, get to Ezekiel, look at the beloved Israel typology that is in this actual true event. And God, instead of killing her, stoops down and begins writing in the dust with his fingers as though with his finger as though he does not hear them. And ask why. That's his answer. He doesn't answer them. He writes. The finger of God is writing. And while he is writing, the pack of evil men continually scream and yell at him and demand that he participate. He either kills her with them or he steps aside while they kill her. Moses in the law commanded us that she should be executed, but what do you say? What do you say? What do you say? What Continually, what do you say? Continually asking him. And what does he do? Writes in the dirt. Now, It's God writing in the dirt. Do you think it's you in your sandbox? Do you think he writes in the dirt like us? When we make our little... He doesn't do it the way. By the way, that we do it. How long did this go on? How long did he write in the dirt and how long did they scream at him? What... Do you say? What do you say? They were the longer it went, the more confident they were that they had him trapped. How long do you think he would let them be confident that they had him trapped? He would let them go a long time. He's a patient man. Patient God man. And notice again the great words of John. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up. Those are amazing words. And said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Those are famous words. But he's omniscient God. What does he know about the people screaming at him? He knows how they caught her. He knows why they selected her. He knows everything about her, everything about them. 
He is omniscient God. He is outside of time. And I just want you to know that, that John is constantly revealing the true identity of Jesus Christ. It's his singular focus. He raised himself up is a very deep sentence. God, uh, John makes sure that you read those words about Christ all the time. He does it uh, at least twice. It is why Mary, by the way, is assigned to John because John knows the true identity of Christ. He devoted his life, the rest of his life, to making sure everybody that came in contact with John knew the true identity. Move along here. So, I, Oh, I've got to go. The finger of God then writes again a second time. Uh, I don't have time to read that, but you can read it. He does it twice. He writes two times. And by the way, he writes twice. Two times he writes in, uh, the uh, Ten Commandments. Two times he writes here. And ultimately, after a while, the man and God, I'm sorry, the woman and God are alone. The surrounded woman caught and doomed, about to be stoned by the very ones who hired her. I know that because of Ezekiel 16. She was certain that she had no hope, and now she's standing there after he has written in the dirt twice, and nobody threw a rock. It says, by the way, the old men left first. That's the way it goes. Old men... No, we, if you have any understanding of yourself, you know how many sins you've accumulated. Young men have a tendency to think that they're doing good. Old men fool no one, usually never themselves. Not always true. It's a generality. We've had a few presidents that have fooled themselves. That's a political statement. I hope you don't mind. I did, I did not offend a single visitor. Again, she's certain that she had no hope. She was going to be stoned to death, a brutal way to die. Uh, She was going to be killed by the very one she worked for, Ezekiel 16. And God asks her a question. He says, woman, here we go again. Another question. I'm going around getting all the woman questions. Woman. Where are your accusers? Does he know where the accusers are? He does. Then he asks her another question. Has no man condemned you? Does he know the answer to that? Yes, he does. So here's a woman about to literally be torn to pieces by rocks, is now with God and is safe. That's an amazing change, isn't it? Omniscient God who knows all things asked this woman, another woman, two questions. Where are your accuser? Has no one condemned you? And she answers, no one has condemned me. And he says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Who does she represent? And by the way, can it get any better 
than that for her, the judge of all things, John 5.22, has set her free, saved the woman from a sure, inevitable, inescapable execution, and then he, the judge, does not condemn her. Why? Why doesn't he say, I condemn you? Is he the judge? Could he have condemned her? But he doesn't. Why? Who is she? Hopefully you already know why he doesn't condemn her. Genesis 15, the lamp and the smoking furnace. But if not, we'll have to collect more women. And we'll go to John 4, which we don't have time to do today. So you're, you're lucky. I'm going to leave three, four pages here. John 4 is what? It's the adulterous woman at the well, isn't it? Obviously, I have the adulterous woman in John 8. Now I have to have the adulterous woman in John 4. Got to read them side by side. And you got to see all those details. There's a plot of ground. There's Jacob's well. All those Genesis uh, details. And he needed to go through Samaria to see this woman at the well. Why does God need to go? What happened on this spot? And he says to her, give me a drink. Uh Uh-oh. He's going to drink water with this woman in Samaria, in this place. Wait a minute. He's going to drink water. What's that got to do with those three commandments of 1 Kings 13? Give me a drink. Christ is willing to drink water at this place that he needed to go. I hope that reminded you of 1 Kings 13. And as we go through this passage, John 4, in two, three weeks, whatever it is, we will notice that eating is also prominent. And then Christ defines food. That's good. That's God's definition of food. But today, just know that John 4 connects to John 8, connects to John 19, connects to Ezekiel 16 and 19 and Genesis 3. And when you get all of those, you're on your way to solving the third saying. Recognize that the Jews would not let a woman, this Samaritan woman at the well, they wouldn't let her touch their food, much less give them something to drink. And his comment, give me a drink, stunned her. And she knew immediately who he was. Very quickly who he was. And that is our task, is to know who he is. Really who he is. Especially this time of year. You have to know who he is. Why do you have to know who he is? So you can tell somebody who he really is. Look, take the glasses off. That's God. How hard is that? If you can do that, what do you become? Helpful. Does he need us? He doesn't need us. He certainly, I've learned, I've been saying that earlier today, to someone who will remain nameless. I learned really fast that God does not need me. It is not for my benefit. I'm sorry, it is not for his benefit that I know who he is. It is for my benefit that I know who he is. And my job is to tell as many people who he truly is as I can. As fast as I can, as often as I can. And I try my best to do it to every single person that I can do it to. One way or the other. Why? 
hold me to, to direct order. I try to be reasonably obedient. And I also know it's for my sake. Let's rise and be the